um, and we're going to look today at Hebrews, this is the, first, the longest talk first up, and it's Hebrews 1 to 3. So please open up the Bible there, that means either on your device or if you've got the real one, you can open that as well. Um, I remember talking to a young bloke who was a shepherd in Tenterfield and he said to me, uh, David, you've got to realise that when a lamb is born it has one goal and that is to die. And the goal of the shepherd is to keep the lamb from fulfilling its goal. That is to keep the lamb from dying. Because sheep drift, sheep go astray. And you know in your own heart that people go astray as well. And so when that young man, Robert Robinson, at the age of 22, can you imagine this, wrote these words, words prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's not just a young man's problem, it's a problem for all of us. We can drift. And the pastor to the Christians from a Hebrew Jewish background in the first century preaches this sermon and someone puts it down in written form. And the sermon comes and it urges them not to drift back to the old way. So you can imagine what it's like to be a Jewish Christian in the first century. You'd be surrounded by family and your family would say, listen, come back, come back to the temple, come back to the sacrifices, come back, that's where you belong. All your extended family are back there, we're just waiting for you to come back. And sexually you'd know that you could look at the temple and you could smell the sacrifices and you could smell the blood of the animals and you would see the priesthood and you were drawn back to all that because that's how you were raised. And you knew that security-wise, the Romans had declared that Judaism was a legitimate religion. Christianity wasn't. And so when the lions were roaring in the Colosseum, they were never roaring for Jewish blood. They were roaring for anything but Jewish blood. And that might have included Christian blood. Come back. It's good to come back. After all, it's like, look, look, at, look at Judaism. It's like a cold supermarket, isn't it? Look at the Christian assembly. It's like a little corner store. Leave it behind. Come back. And we will drift. And the central point of this sermon is that Christ is the superlative son. Don't drift from him because if you drift from him back to anything else, it will always be inferior. Now, the drift for us is not back to the old covenant, not back to Judaism. The drift for us is it? back to the world. Just adopt the world's ways. Don't drift because in Jesus you have that which is supreme. And look at the way the letter starts. Have a look at verses 1 to 4. It is one sentence in the original language. And what a wonderful way to start the sermon. He says seven things about Jesus. Look at them. First, the speaking God has spoken in the past in many ways. Verse 2, now he has spoken literally in Son. By his Son. Jesus is the message. Jesus is God at the microphone. Jesus is what God wants to say. Secondly, Jesus is appointed heir of all things. Look at that verse 2. All nations, all empires are his. Anybody else apart from Jesus who lords it over any nation is a squatter in territory that is not his by right. Thirdly, through whom he created the world. Jesus was before creation. He made it 
and the world is his. The whole universe is his. Third, fourthly, look at verse 3. He is the radiance of God's glory. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus reflects God's glory. So God's glory shines on Jesus and he reflects it out. No. Jesus has within him the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God himself. He radiates that from within him. Fifthly, verse 3, he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the very stamp of God. So Jesus could say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. All that God is, Jesus is. Sixthly, verse 3, he upholds the universe by his word of power. He doesn't wind it up and let it go. The laws of creation are his laws. When Isaac Newton discovered the law of gravity, he recognised it as the law of his Saviour, Jesus Christ. And seventhly, have a look at that wonderful verse, he meets our greatest need, having made purification for sins. His work is done and he sits at God's right hand. Now this, dear friends, is a magnificent introduction to the sermon. You've got to know who you're deserting. And if you desert him, Who are you going to go to? And we have two sons. They both went to Trinity Grammar. They went to Trinity Grammar in the days when Roderick West was the headmaster. Roderick West, together with Milton Chuez as well, were great headmasters. But Roderick West was the sort of guy who was a headmaster who on speech day could speak for 50 minutes and you didn't want him to stop. Now that's fairly rare. He was a great orator. He was a great writer. And the thing I noticed about Roderick West is he never used a noun without an adjective (laughs) and he never used a verb without an adverb. So he would talk about not just a fate but a marvellous fate. He'd talk about the fact that the boy ran inspirationally, that it was a defeat but it was a valiant defeat. He used adjectives and he used adverbs. Now look at what the writer is saying. He, He is a representative He is the sustaining, he is the providing, he is the son at God's right hand, the inheritor, the creator, the radiator. That's Jesus. And his point, verse 4, is that he is superior to the angels just as his name is superior to theirs because angel means messenger. But Jesus is son. He has a superior name because he is superior. Now, I just want you to notice the pattern here because the writer never wants us to just learn principles without applying them to life. And here's your pattern. You see it there in your outline. The writer uses the principle. He backs it up with scripture like every good preacher should. Don't believe it because I say, look at what scripture says. And then he applies it to our everyday life. He will not have you walking away from here ticking the doctrinal box without being transformed by the truth. Now here is principle one. Verses one, chapter four, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse four. The son is superior to the angels. His name, angel, son, is superior to their name, angel, messenger. And notice that the writer says seven things about Jesus and then look at verse 5, he backs them up with seven quotes from Scripture. Seven assertions, seven quotes from Scripture. And he tells us first of all, look at verse 5, the son's status, he is a son to the father. In fact, all the angels, verse 6, worship him and he rules 
Verse 8, his throne is forever and ever. The heavens and the earth may perish, but you remain. Your years have no end. And then what is his place? Look at verse 13. Sit at my right hand. He's already told us that Jesus sat at the right hand of God. You see, here's his summation. The angels are ministering spirits, but the Son is superior in status. He is superior in rule. He is superior in place. And you say, well, so what, Mr. Preacher? Well, the so what is there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Does it mean these people running around worshipping angels? No, look at what he says. Verse 2. To reject the message of the angels that was carried, that is the law, was serious enough, he says. And that resulted in retribution. People were punished for doing it. How much more, verse 3, serious it is to reject the great, literally the mega salvation which is brought to us by the Son. The Son is superior. And so the message he brings is superior to the message of the angels. Look at verse 3. This salvation was declared by the Lord, attested by the apostles, witnessed to by God. This is a great salvation because it's all about Jesus the Son. It's not about messengers and angels. Don't drift. The Son is superior. This is a great salvation. And if you go to the alternative, it is always inferior. So after this session's over, you might come up to me and say, I've got a black coffee for you. And I say, oh, I'm actually a white tea, but I've put four sugars in there. Well, thanks very much. But do you think it might have been good to ask me what I wanted? And you come to God and say, God, how can I come into relationship with you? I've spoken in my son. Pay the closest attention to what you have heard. I've declared it. I've attested this gospel. I have witnessed this gospel. Don't come to me apart from the Son. He is absolutely central. Principle number two. Have a look at chapter two, verse five to the end of the chapter. Here's the principle. The Son is supreme. He is distant. He is aloof. He is God. No, he is not. Here's your principle. Jesus is one of us. He is truly human. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He is one with us. Jesus knows what it is like to be human. He came to this earth, our elder brother, and he is one with us. And he knows what it's like to be you. Well, back that up from scripture. Okay, he does. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. He quotes on this occasion from Psalm 8. What is man? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you've now crowned him with glory and honour. Who is he talking about? Is Psalm 8 about Adam? No, he was never crowned with glory and honour. Is Psalm 8 about you and me? No. Psalm 8 is all about Jesus. He is the man. He became man. He was made a little lower than the angels. He is now exalted to the right hand of God. So have a look there at verse 9. Namely, Jesus is crowned with glory and honour. He became one with us. He became the God-man in order to deliver humans. Verse 9. He tasted death. 
as our representative. In fact, verse 10, he is the founder of our salvation. He is perfect. Verse 11, he calls us brothers. He sanctifies us. He calls us family. He becomes one with us. Verse 14, he takes on flesh and blood in order to deliver us so that we will no longer be convicts to the fear of death. Just look there at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He becomes man. He lives the perfect life. He submits himself to death which is undeserved because he lived a perfect life. And he does that on behalf of his family in order to bring us to Almighty God. He is the High Priest who represents us and bridges the gap between humankind and God. He tastes death as our representative so that the taste of death will never pass through our mouth. He is one with us. He has lived. He has died in our place. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Application. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, since you share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Get mastery, get understanding of Jesus and get understanding of two things about Jesus. First, that he is the Apostle and the big thing about an Apostle is that he brings a message. Jesus is the Apostle. Get mastery of the message which he brings. But he is more than the message. He is also the high priest of our confession. He is the one whose sacrifice will bring us to God. There is no other message and there is no other sacrifice. Pay close attention to it. Don't drift away from it. Get to that one message and remember that one effective sacrifice. Don't drift. Principle 3, the rest of chapter 3. Have a look at it, chapter 3, verse 2. This is the point he makes. The principle now is that Jesus is superior to Moses. The writer doesn't put Moses down. He simply says, verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant. But verse 6, Christ is faithful in the household as a son. Verse 3, he says Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses as the builder of the house is worthier than the house itself. Jesus is superior to Moses. Scripture, back it up, prove it. Well, look at verses 7 to 11. Now he quotes from Psalm 95. There was a whole generation when Moses said, let us go into the promised land. They rebelled against Moses and they refused to enter the promised land. That was serious enough. Verse 11. I swore in my wrath that they shall never enter my rest because they rebelled against Moses. They never were going to find the rest of the promised land. To rebel against Moses is bad enough. But there is one who is superior to Moses. How horrendous therefore to rebel against Jesus who is the Son. And so the application is there in verse 8. Here's the application. He says, don't harden your heart. They have hardened hearts. You make sure that your heart is not hardened 
Verse 10, they were always going astray in their heart. And he says there in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. See, to rebel against Moses because you had a hard heart, that's bad enough. But you take care that your heart doesn't cause you to fall away from Jesus. And therefore, he says, notice verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I believe Ashfield Church can give thanks for a number of things. Right now, the excellence of your pastoral oversight. But the 26 years that we were away at SMBC, you had a pastor who I think was just a wonderful pastor, Peter Hastings. He was a wonderfully pastorally involved man, Peter and Sue. They looked after you. They looked out for your soul. They were always on the doorstep. That was my experience of them at any time of crisis. Do you see what the writer is saying here in verse 13? We share a responsibility to keep pastoring one another. You see, to resist Moses is bad enough. You'll never enter my rest. But to resist Christ is far worse. And you say, no, wait on. What about those who rebelled against Moses? Who were they? Well, look at verse 16 to 20. Who were these rebels? He says, those are the ones who were led out of Egypt. Those are the ones who had the Passover, the angel of death, pass over them. Those are the ones who came through the Red Sea. They were the ones who experienced God's redeeming work. Those are the ones who saw God at work. They'd experienced God's work and yet they were the very same ones who were deceived into disobedience. In other words, what are you saying is, dear friends, sin is very clever. Sin deludes, sin deceives, sin entertains, sin makes promises. It's very alluring but it never fulfills those promises. You watch your heart. You watch your heart and how you respond to riches. You watch your heart and how you respond to ambition. You watch your heart and how you respond to amusements. You keep pastoring me. Make sure that I'm following in the promises of God. And he says, you test your heart. Look at verse 6. It's a wonderful verse. How can I know that I've got a right heart before Almighty God? Verse 6. And we are his house. Look at this. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You have a right heart if you persevere in the confidence that we have and don't drift away from it to a more enlightened view. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here is the principle. Here are the scriptures. Here is the application. Do you notice the application? I know why. Pay careful attention to your great salvation. Why? Because Christ is greater than the angels. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Why? Because he is the apostle who is the message and he is the high priest who is the sacrifice. And don't be deceived. 
pass to one another. Watch your heart. Don't drift, for to drift from Moses was to never enter rest. To drift from Christ is far worse. Well, dear friends, there's a three-point sermon to start our time together. And let me make a three-point conclusion. Number one, uh, Maxine and I live in Dremoyne. We live above a shopping centre. So, uh, when I walk through our backyard, we live in a home unit. That's, uh, I go down to the shopping centre and I just walk through the shopping centre and annoy all the shopping centre owners and I can tell you every special that's on in Coles Supermarket where we live. I just wander through there. And recently I was in my Priceline pharmacy and they had a computer section there and they said, we'll tell you how your health is and the age of your heart. So I went through all the tests and I pressed the button and it told me that my heart, the heart I had was the heart of an 83 year old. (laughs) Now, you probably don't know how old I am, but I'm not 83. And uh, that, that struck me. I've got the heart of an 83 year old. What about your heart? What is your heart according to the Bible? Now to find what the Bible means by heart, don't go and look at a dictionary. It will tell you about some organ that are pumping your body. That's not the heart according to the Bible. If you go into the British Museum, go there one time and go to room 7. And in room 7 you've got the artefacts from the 7th century Assyrian Empire. And there's a great big rock from outside the city of Nimrod. And there's on this rock, they've carved into the rock a vulture sitting over the stomach of a man and the vulture is just pulling out the man's innards, all his gizzards, all his intestines and his bowels. And that rock is a warning. If you come to this city, you will find this city defended by people without intestines. And that meant without compassion, without feelings of any mercy, They'll give themselves unstintingly, without mercy, the defence of this city. And so the way we used the heart was the way they used bowels, intestines and stomachs back in the BC. So what does heart mean according to the Bible? The heart means it's the engine room of everything within me and especially the mind. So God says to Moses, teach them to remember everything I have told them, to remember them in their hearts. We'd say in your mind. But it's almost synonymous. Get your mind right. We talk about, oh, get it into your heart as though you've got to feel it. That's not the way the Bible talks. Get it into your mind and put it in there and think about it through and through. Don't drift because drifting starts here. Here. Bertrand Russell, the atheist philosopher, said most people would rather die than think. And most people do. Think about it. Come back to this message. Give it your careful attention. Friday lunchtime I went at our church to our retired men's Bible study. You know what we're doing this year? We're reading through a book. I'll tell you about this book. The lady who was the receptionist at St Helens, Bishopsgate in London, one day came back from her lunch and she put this book in her bag. I said, Janet, what is the book? She gave me a copy of it that said, Dear Janet, Happy Christmas from her husband Don. And it had 1988 and it was ticked. 2002 and it was ticked. And then it had 2017, not yet ticked. She's reading this book for the third time. What's the name of this book that the retired men at Dremoyne are reading? It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. 
And here's Janet reading it for the third time. Pay careful attention. Give your whole mind, your heart, to understanding this gospel and don't inch away from it. How's your heart? How's your mind? That's the first thing. Second thing, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the great missing element of devotion in the Christian's mind today is that of meditation, thinking about and talking to yourself. That's right, isn't it? You think of the most influential person in your life. Who was that? 48 years, my wife. My parents who taught me to speak. Very influential. My youth worker, my economics teacher back at high school. All influential. But none of them rate to the most influential person in my life and yours. You. There is no one more influential in my life than me. I'm here today. You notice that? And tomorrow I'll be at church. Wherever I go, I'm there. I'm in the same Bible study as I am. I go to the same movies as I go. There is no one more influential than me. So what do I say to me about me? I have an apostle whose message is part of my very being. I have a high priest whose sacrifice will always make me right with God so that my last word will be Jesus. As Packer says in Knowing God, I'm a child of God, God is my father, heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. Every Christian is my brother and every, and every Christian is my brother or sister and my saviour is my brother and every Christian is my brother or sister too. You can see that on page 257 of Knowing God. What do you say to you about you? Use your brains. Build on the influence that you have with you. And the third thing I'd say is this. When I first came to Ashfield in 1981, many of our people, when they went to hospital, went to the old Western Suburbs Hospital and I would visit to pass to them. You could never get a parking space but I noticed that outside the front of the old Western Suburbs Hospital there were three parking spaces with a big sign that said reserved for doctors only. Never cars in there. So I thought, right, I'm going to go straight in there and I'll have the answer ready. If anybody says, hey, you can't park there, only for doctors, I am a doctor. I'm a doctor to the soul. I'm a physician to the eternal. I'm a spiritual doctor. And you know, in the four years I visited, no one ever stopped me and I parked there all the time. But that's right, isn't it? We are pastors to one another. I am to pastor you. And therefore, when I go to church on Sunday, and when you go to church on Sunday, you see me. You see me as a man in one, of, one category like this. I'm in danger of drifting and I know it. Or I'm in danger of drifting and I don't know it. And that's even more dangerous. Or I'm safe in Jesus and I know it. Or I'm safe in Jesus and I don't know it. Whatever category I am in, I need pastoring. I'm between redemption and reward and I need pastoring. Check your own heart. What do you say to yourself about you? And do you take your pastoring responsibilities of one another seriously? And this really means, what do you talk about after church out on the lovely lawn in Liverpool Road, Ashfield? What do you talk about? Amusements? Ambitions? How are you going? 
as you walk towards the eternal city. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Hebrews says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, because today is the day of opportunity, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And though you've experienced so much from God as they had, yet they were led astray. And God says, they will never enter my rest. Well, let's pray. We thank and praise you, our Heavenly Father, that we have access to this wonderful sermon. And we pray that as we are led through it today, that you would build us up in our conviction and our confidence and our commitment to our Lord Jesus, who is our great shepherd of the sheep. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, David. Uh, it says break in the program, but it's not a break. It's half an hour to encourage one another daily. Uh, we'll be back here at 10.30.